Good morning, everyone. Thank you, team, for leading us this morning. Thank you, Joe, for uh, praying for us. And thank you, veterans that are here today for serving our country, um, for modeling sacrificial love uh, for our nation and the freedoms that we enjoy. We appreciate you and are thankful for your sacrifice. Today we are actually talking a lot about sacrifice and surrender. You know, I find it to be uh, very interesting. We're born into this world, and I think I'm safe to say this. All of us are born really kind of self-centered, right? You know, when we come to find that out, it's about age two or three, all the parents are laughing because they know that age to be the, what, terrible twos. Yeah, the first time we really recognize the sting of being told, no. <laughs> Usually at that age, we find ourselves on the floor, throwing a fit, throwing things, maybe, clanging things around, acting childish, and well, we're two years old, so... I guess there's an excuse. But really, for the rest of our lives, for, for the rest of the time that we spend on earth, much of that time is spent learning how to live in a way that is centered on Christ and focused on loving others. And that is hard. That does not come natural. Words like surrender. Not words that are common vocabulary in the mouths of our culture, but should be in the mouths of those who follow Christ. And it's interesting how God teaches us throughout our lives how to sacrifice, how to surrender. And one of the ways that he does this is from a very early age, we're born into families. And one of the roles that a family plays is to teach one another how to surrender, how to sacrifice. I'm learning this. I learn this regularly each week. Throughout the week, there are times, windows, vignettes, when Sheila goes away for a little bit. And if you want to ever see me clinging to Christ... Come to my house when my wife's not present. And all seven kids are there. It is an adventure. It's fun. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's great. There's a lot of energy and vibrancy in the house. But in any given moment, on any given day, we can have a student doing homework in a room while another is listening to music somewhere, while two others are duking it out someplace. I'm not sure where. Sacrifice. Surrender. The way that God teaches us these things is drawing us into communities, placing us in spaces with other people where we need to learn how to lay down our lives for the good of one another. Mm. Is there an example for us to look to, for us to follow, 
for the early church, the first church that was receiving this good news from Mark, was there a greater example? They were suffering. They were being persecuted. They had given up quite literally everything to follow Jesus. How could they do it well? How can we do it well? How can we surrender, sacrifice, and suffer well for the glory of God in this world? Today, as our suffering servant's death draws near in the gospel, we are going to walk alongside of him to three locations. Our final stop will be on the Hill of Skulls, where we will witness the greatest act of surrender and sacrificial love that has ever or will ever be known. At each location, we are going to pause to explore the following question. What qualities are present or appearing in the lives of those who are living as broken and poured out before God? Today we begin in Bethany. If you have your Bibles, you want to take them and turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. We begin our journey in a town called Bethany. And before we read the words in verses 3 to 9, let's pray and ask God to help us as we study his word. Lord, we do thank you for the living and active nature of your word. We thank you that you work through it, that your spirit is alive, active, and present even now in this corporate activity. You call us together as a body of Christ. We come, and Lord, you use this time to build joy into our lives, build hope and faith and love into our lives, and you do that through the power and the goodness of your word. It is rich, and it is full. We thank you. Father, we're looking to our Savior Jesus today. We're hoping to learn from him and from the lives of those that surrounded him how we might surrender, how we might sacrifice, and how we might suffer well for your glory and for others' good in this world. And we're hoping that in this text today that there will be qualities that appear that show us what it looks like to live as broken and poured out for your glory and others' good. Teach us as we enter your text this morning, as we accompany your words together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Mark chapter 14, verses 3 to 9. And while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment. Ointment of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. 
She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Just a few chapters ago, in chapter 12, we were left with the example of a widow who had given out of her poverty everything she could. And here again, we find ourselves at yet another event that is foreshadowing the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. This is Mary, Mary the sister of Lazarus and Martha. And she is going to give generously and sacrificially in ministry to our Lord. Her anointing is in preparation, as Jesus says, for his death. And this section of Mark, it's very interesting as we entered into last week and continue really all the way through next week when we conclude, Jesus has been reminding his disciples to remain alert and watchful in ministry. And as we will see throughout this text and in other texts, on many, many occasions, Jesus' closest followers failed. There's a contrast here. And the contrast is in the role of the women. We recognize it in the literary context where on multiple occasions Jesus has just warned his male disciples in chapter 13, remain watchful and alert. And now as we enter into chapter 14, we're going to find these disciples complaining, aloof, asleep. They're going to betray him. They're going to deny him. They'll run and flee. They will be silent in the face of injustice. They'll doubt. They are moving away from Jesus. While in contrast to their example, there are the women. And the women, at the end of the gospel narratives, very different. They are drawing close. They are at his feet. They are ministering to him. They're demonstrating gratitude and generosity. They're faithfully remaining with him, even if in the background of his sufferings. We find them participating in his burial. They become the first witness in his resurrected state. And they're among the first ones that he commissions to proclaim the good news to others that he is risen. And this contrast unveils many lessons. One, perhaps, is that proximity to Jesus is not to be equated with faithfulness to Jesus. They are not the same. Jesus' core group of disciples, they were in proximity, very close to him throughout his life. Yet when the fires were on, when the temperature got turned up, they abandoned, they fled, they betrayed. Another lesson, and one that was especially valuable to the early church, is that one does not need to achieve high social standing, wealth, class, or reputation in order to steadfastly and faithfully follow Jesus. Jesus' call to take up one cross and follow him is a call that's offered to any and all who would come. Now Mark's gospel, he will redeem the example of two men, and we'll see this in the burial account today. 
Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea are presented as an exception, not the norm. And ironically, neither Nicodemus nor Joseph of Arimathea would have been considered or included by Jesus' disciples as fellow disciples. Now there's three times in the gospel account where we find Mary and each time she is found as humble, broken, and contrite at the feet of her Savior. Each time Jesus commends her. Friends, if we're seeking to live as broken and poured out, gentle humility and sacrificial love will follow. Gentle humility, sacrificial love, gratitude, generosity. They all flow from the disciple that's seeking to live as broken and poured out. This ointment that Mary is applying to Jesus is terribly expensive. Biblical scholar William Lane suggests that perfume of this nature was not only costly, but it was often a, fairly, a family heirloom, one that had been passed down from one generation to the next to the next. And the Greek word that's used here in this text suggests that the disciples violently object to Mary's generosity. That's the word that is used. It's a word that meant the violent objection. They were visibly in their face, in their disposition, put off by Mary's waste in their minds. It was an egregious misuse of resources. A year's worth, 300 denarii, a year's worth of wages broken and poured out on the head and feet of Jesus. In other gospel accounts, we are told that Mary wipes his feet with her hair. Seeking to live broken and poured out means that disciples will value, appreciate, honor, and apply the example of Mary because of the value that Jesus places on both her person and her actions in these moments. Jesus raises an Ebenezer from the actions of Mary. That is what he's doing in verse 9 when he says this is going to be an example that's permanently affixed to the message of the gospel for all disciples in all places for eternity. Look at verse 9 again. I tell you the truth. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, unfortunately, friends, for those who were in that room that day with Jesus, her example would be largely dismissed and overlooked as the disciples continued blindly onward with Jesus as he's moving now from Bethany to our next stop in Gethsemane. And in between those two locations, Judas would plot Jesus' betrayal. Jesus would share in a Passover feast where he would institute the practice of communion. And then he would predict Peter's three denials. 
But we want to stop at Gethsemane. Look down at verse 32 of chapter 14. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and what? Watch. Key word in these chapters. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said, I love this, Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? There's that word again, watch, 38, watch and pray. That you might not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He could see that they wanted to. He could see, he could hear Peter's desire to really follow. The spirit was ready, but the flesh was weak. And again, he went away, verse 39, and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And this time, they're embarrassed. I mean, they were probably embarrassed the first time. First time I ever got caught sleeping in a college class. Woo! Bright red face. Boom! Probably like a stoplight. The second time around... That's even more embarrassing. They don't, they don't even have words. They don't even know how to answer him. Verse 41, he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer. Is at hand. It was chapter 13 where four separate times Jesus had pleaded with his disciples. And here again, three separate times, seven times in two chapters. Be watchful, be alert, over and over and over again. And they can't do it. Jesus is going to pray. I love that. It's the end of his life. He knows what's ahead. He knows what's about to happen. He knows the suffering he's about to endure. He knows the betrayal he's about to face. He knows the beating he's about to take. And where does he go? To prayer. 
And this has been a habit throughout his ministry where he's patterned for us what utter dependence on the Father looks like in our daily lives. Lord, I do not have the strength. I need you to help. How many of us have prayed that you don't have to raise your hands? I know in your heart. How many of you have been in a situation or a setting where you've found yourself the only place that you could go at the feet of Jesus clinging to him? Lord, help. I cannot do it. I cannot do this. Jesus has demonstrated through his commitment to prayer how followers, even in the face of suffering and turmoil and trial, can still have a vibrant and life-sustaining relationship with God. So valuable to a church that was facing tremendous persecution in Rome. Jesus is agonizing. It would be here in the garden where he would... The text would describe in other gospel accounts where he drips, his blood is is dripping as sweat. So anxious, he's suffering. Visible dependence on the Father. As the suffering increases and draws nearer, his dependence on the Father in prayer too is increasing. And there is an example for us all as well. As suffering increases, so too should our prayer. In the previous portion of the text, Peter strongly rebuked Jesus' prediction regarding his denial. In Peter's mind, by his own strength, he would never forsake Jesus. Jesus, I'll never forsake you. But Jesus here contrasts Peter's false confidence with the demonstration of what true humility and dependence looks like. Not my will, but thy will. By our own strength, friends, we will fail. By our own strength, we will fall short. We can't do it on our own. I love how Mark draws out these difficult and hard emotions that Jesus is experiencing. He doesn't allow us to escape from them in the text. He wants us to see what the Son of Man is suffering and going through. Both as God and man. Jesus is deeply grieved to the point of death, the text says. Deeply grieved. He falls to the ground. He's Pleading with the Father, we see the suffering. The Greek words that are used here are filled up. Our English translations cannot do them justice. There's words like that, that hold all of these ideas of trouble, distress, bewildered, afraid, uncertain, anxious. All can be proper uses and interpretations of the emotions that Jesus is experiencing in the garden. And yet, he is without Sin. Oh, I just get a little bit of suffering and I go off the deep end. <laughs> we joke around in our house, we say, flipping out and throwing up everywhere. <laughs> Not literally throwing up, but you know what it is. Like, 
just that anxiety and it just and and it just a little bit I Jesus is demonstrating what it looks like to have complete and utter faithfulness to God's will even in the face of the most extreme discomfort and pain that we could imagine He's already sensing the power of Satan. He knows his betrayers at hand. He's feeling the weight of humanity's sin. He's sensing and knowing that the empty darkness of death is upon his doorstep. And no one has ever had, nor will anyone ever again suffer in the way that Jesus is suffering right here, right now. His suffering, his sacrifice, and his submission to God is whole, is perfect, and complete. Friends, disciples who are seeking to live as broken and poured out will faithfully submit ourselves to God's will even as we face and endure the fiercest trials of this world. Where do we go when we're hurting? Where do we go when we've experienced loss that we cannot even put words to? Where do we go when we're suffering beyond imagination? Where do we turn? There's one place, friends. There's a rock. There's a shelter. There's a place of security, a strong tower. His name is God. And though Jesus, in his mind, wishes this cup be removed, he is able to acknowledge in the midst of the pain and suffering, yet not what I will, but what you will. And all of this is happening while his disciples are sleeping. Wow. What are they missing? Imagine if they would have just been able to stay awake and to see the example of Jesus before them. By very definition, we see Jesus here also as truly the friend of sinners. He continues to demonstrate his concern and care for his disciples even as his own death is approaching. Look at verse 37. Again, he's showing that he cares about them even as they're sleeping. Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake for one hour? Look at verse 38. Stay awake and pray that you will not fall into temptation. Biblical commentator J.D. Kingsbury said the following about the disciples' example. He said, quote, In the Passion account, the disciples are ironic figures. Because of their incomprehension, they badly misconstrue the true nature of things. Thinking themselves to be astute, courageous, and loyal, they are in reality imperceptive, cowardly, and faithless. Entering upon the Passion, the disciples yet follow Jesus in commitment to him. As events unfold, however, they will renounce their commitment through word, deed, and apostasy. End quote. And the last time that Jesus returns to confront his sleeping and resting disciples will be the last time he talks to them as a group before he's crucified. He's waking them up one last time. 
In their failure to stay awake and watchful, the disciples are caught unaware as Jesus faces his betrayer. He is then beaten by the Roman guards as the text continues. He's taken into custody. He's condemned. He's prosecuted. He's denied. He's brought before Pilate. He's denounced. He's mocked. He's tortured. He's humiliated. He's whipped. And finally, he's led away to be crucified. We need to pick up the narrative in chapter 15, verse 20, and read through verse 41. We want to read this all together. It's a powerful scene. It's the event of Jesus' crucifixion. It's full. Verse 20. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his clothes And let him out to be crucified. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means a place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when it was 9 a.m., There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down to take him. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and Joses, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Mark's original audience faced their own suffering and persecution at the hands of Roman authorities. How ironic for them to read about the Savior of the world facing his own suffering and persecution at the hands of those very 
same authorities. He's able to relate to us in our sufferings because he suffered so much more than we do. Here at the foot of this hill, a man named Simon is contracted to literally apply the words of Jesus that had come earlier in the gospel in Mark chapter 8. Take up your cross and follow me. Only this man's cross happens to be the cross of his Savior. By 9 a.m., Jesus is hanging on the cross, charged as the king of the Jews, crucified between rebels, tormented even as he was agonizing. Even as he died, even as we read that account, the people who were there were filled with hatred towards Jesus. In being tortured, humiliated, and hated, Jesus himself never gave way to the hate. It's amazing. Late theologian Howard Thurman said the following quote, Jesus rejected hatred because he saw that hatred meant death to the mind, death to the spirit, and death to communion with his father. He affirmed life and hatred was the great denial. End quote. We see that denial in this text. As the events of the crucifixion unfold, Jesus continues to experience ridicule and mocking and abuse and antagonism, even to the point where the text says he feels forsaken by the Father. All of this, friends, for me, for you, for us, for the glory of his Father, obedience unto death. What makes this event perhaps reverberate throughout history are the words that are actually missing from Mark's gospel account, but they're so important, we must cover them today. They appear in Luke they are an example for disciples looking to live faithfully and obediently in their own persecution and torment. Jesus prays on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. A lifetime of love, of compassion, of grace, of mercy, of healing and care. There's a demonstration of wisdom unimaginable. Jesus, an example, the image of sinless perfection. And his life ends in pain, in torture, in agony as he feels forsaken, alone, and bewildered. And in his final breaths, instead of saying, woe is me, what a hard life I lived, he's pleading with God for the forgiveness of his enemies. We could reflect back to the sermon that he preached at the very beginning of his earthly ministry. Jesus here is showing us that he is willing to practice what he preaches. Matthew chapter 5, you heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. 
But I say to you, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be like your Father in heaven, since he causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Father, forgive them. Jesus also taught his disciples to pray as we forgive those who trespass against us. And his earliest followers, the earliest disciples, those that picked up his cause and carried it to establish and plant the early church, continued to press these concepts forward, saying things in their letters like, forgive as you have been forgiven. Be careful to repay no one evil for evil. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. Friends, a life that is lived as a broken and poured out offering before God is one that will spend itself in learning and applying the habits of forgiveness. It's so hard. I know. When people have hurt us and wounded us so deeply, it's hard to forgive. Some of us in this room today know the pain of withheld forgiveness. There are people in our lives we need to forgive and we've been holding on for far too long. Friends, today's the day to let go. Today's the day to look at the example of Jesus on the cross and to recognize that that pain is forgivable. And that pain is freeing when you forgive. Jesus forgave. We have to practice forgiveness an awful lot in our home. There's nine of us. <laughs> Mom and dad, too. Not just to one another when we hurt one another, but to our children as well when we wound them with our words or our behaviors. We have to be people that learn to apply and practice forgiveness. This road is narrow, friends. Jesus never says it's going to be easy. It's a road that leads to death. In this world, Jesus promises that we are going to have our trials, our tribulations, and our despair. But he also says, take heart, I have overcome the world. And greater is he who inhabits his church than he who is in the world. We can do this. We can forgive, friends. Jesus' last breath is met with the tearing of the curtain, making access to the Father available to all who will hear, who will see, who will confess, repent, and believe. And his death, isn't it amazing? You saw it in the text in Mark's gospel. It's met with this curious proclamation when one of Jesus' own torturers, a centurion, stands at the foot of the cross and says, what? Truly, this man was God's son. What an example 
in death. Forgive. Verse 44, jumping down, Pilate questioned whether Jesus could be dead that soon and called for the captain to verify that he was really dead. Verse 45, assured by the captain, he gave Joseph the corpse. And that Pilate would allow for Joseph to take Jesus' body is further evidence that Pilate did not believe Jesus to be guilty of the crimes that were charged against him. And in Jesus' burial account, Joseph and Nicodemus shine as men who were living on alert. These are men who were living watchful and alert, ready to practice and apply the ways of the kingdom, however and wherever they could in Jesus' death. And so then, perhaps a final observation of the qualities that are part of a broken and poured out life. Disciples seeking to live broken and poured out remain watchful and expectant, aware of ways in which we can practice and apply righteousness that is a part of the kingdom of God. The lifeless body of Jesus would be placed in a tomb. The stone would be rolled across the entry of the tomb. It looks and it feels as though this is the end. And this is where we will leave the text today. But we all know this is not the end. Amen? Amen. Oh, we're going to have fun next week. A lot of fun next week. We're going to talk about the life that follows the resurrection of our Messiah. He does not stay in that tomb. He rises up from the dead, defeating death. Once and for all. And as our team comes today, I just want to say and share that as we gather here in this building or online today, friends, before Christ, I was in the seat of the scoffers. Before Christ, all of us, the Bible describes, are at enmity with God, dead in our trespasses and sins according to the ways of this world. And if you heard and if you saw anything else today in this text and in these words and in the example of Jesus, hear and see this, that all of those people participated in all of those terrible things against the Messiah and getting him on the cross. And in his final words, what was he saying? Father, forgive them. And you might be sitting here today, you might be sitting at home, and you might be thinking, I'm a terrible person. There is no way that God could forgive me. I've messed up. Maybe you've lived in shame for far too long. Friends, you can't out-sin the grace of God. And the scripture is clear. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that forgiveness that Jesus extends on the cross to his tormentors will be applied to you as well. There's forgiveness in Christ. So if today is the day that Jesus is compelling to you in a way that he never has been before, 
If you're recognizing the beauty of our Savior today in a way that you never have before, and you're recognizing the brutality of your own sin in a way that you never had before, today's a day to bow your head, to confess, to believe, and to know salvation, the joy of abundant eternal life. Let's pray right now in case there's any that need to pray that. Father, we see the example of Jesus on the cross today. Our hearts are broken for the pain that he endured. And we are humbled that he would take our sin to that place and remain faithful all the way to death. And Lord, there could be some in this room, some listening online who believe that they are sinful beyond measure and there's no way that God could receive them. Father, I pray that they would look and see and hear and know this example of Jesus is true and right, that on the cross, in the face of his tormentors, he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And that same forgiveness today can be applied to anyone who confesses that he is Lord and believes that you raised him from the dead. So Lord, if there's someone listening today, if there's someone here today that needs to pray that prayer, that needs to affirm in their heart and mind, to acknowledge, to repent of their own sin, to turn and to fall at your feet, I pray that they would know the forgiveness that's offered in Jesus, that they would experience the freedom that comes when you remove shame, when you remove guilt, when you remove sin and replace it with the righteousness of Jesus. Father, might somebody know of that today and experience it for the first time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.